Hello, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Anna Loder from readabook.com.au. I'm a lifelong reader and book lover and a long-time book club member. 15 years, I can't believe it. I've been a bookseller for 13 and now I'm a reviewer and blogger. This is a weekly podcast celebrating that love of books and reading. I'm so excited to be in your ears today. Before we get started, can I quickly pay my respects to the Darawal people of the Uyora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which I work, play, read and live on. Along with the traditional owners of the lands throughout Australia, I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Let's get started. This morning I get to speak with Dominic Smith, who is the best-selling author of The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, and his new book, Return to Valento, was super beautiful. It's such a moving read. It's captivating, it's literary, it's everything. It's beautiful characters, beautifully formed, beautiful armchair travel. You just feel like you're in the town of Leto. It was a beautiful, beautiful read. I can't recommend it more highly enough. And Dominic Smith is my first international guest on the Reader Book Podcast. And oh my goodness, am I nervous? Dear OD, I think I'm always excited. I'm always nervous, but today just feels a little bit more. So he was born in Australia. He now lives in Washington. Dominic Smith is the author of six novels, including The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, which was a New York Times bestseller. I absolutely loved that novel. And when I saw that he had a new one coming out, I absolutely jumped at the chance to read and review it ahead of schedule. And I have got no regrets. Return to Belletto is just a beautiful read. Hello, Dominic. Well, I am honoured beyond belief to be speaking with you. Thank you very much. Cannot believe oh, that you've made the welcome. time. I'm honoured. I'm honoured to join you. I'm uh, I'm down in Melbourne, so I got into Australia on Sunday morning, and so the jet lag is breathing down my neck. But yeah, I bet <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. So I'm I'm in Australia through next weekend. So it is a bit of a whirlwind, but it's always great to come back to Australia, especially to connect with Australian booksellers and to see a little bit of family. It's always a treat, definitely. Well, I couldn't be more honoured. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with me. I read and loved. To return to Valletto. So I think I have a terrible ear for accents, but that's how you say it, isn't it? Valletto? It is. Yeah, Valletto. Yeah. And it's funny, the capital of Malta is Valletta. So it's just one letter difference, Valletto. Well, I looked it up expecting it to be a real place. <laughs> I was adding it into my bucket list <laughs> travels and it's not even there. It was so beautifully captured and beautifully described. Thank you. It is based on a real town. So it's modeled heavily on the town of Civita de Bagnoregio which is sort of right on the border of Umbria and Lazio. And it's this incredible hill town with an incredible story. And I did research for the novel back in 2018. So pre-pandemic, discovered this town and its its story and modeled Valletto on the real town. So it's this thousand-year-old town that was settled by the Etruscans. The only way in and out, like with Valletto, is on a footbridge. Mm -hmm. And there are just 10 full-time residents living there now, down from a height of about 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, it's had this sort of tragic story where the Etruscans built the town on this very unstable form of volcanic rock known as tufa. We're trying to get away from malaria down in the valley, but they built up on this pedestal of mm. rock that was very unstable. And so there was a big earthquake in 1695, and about a third of the town sort of collapsed into the valley and really had been mm. declining ever since. But I, while I was traveling in Italy, I fell in love with just so many stories of 
the last 10 people or the last five people or the last 20 people who mm-hmm. will stay in these towns that are sometimes literally crumbling beneath their feet. Yes. Uh, I really wanted to delve into that as a dynamic in the novel. Well, didn't you delve into it beautifully? So in this real town, uh, is it to the extent that it is in Valento? Like, are there restaurants that have just been left? Interestingly, so the real town of Chivita has had a weird sort of comeback. So it's actually on the cover of the US version of the book. The, the cover in Australia is a town nearby of Orvieto, which is its own sort of special thing. But it is, it's had this unusual story where people have loved it. It's very iconic. It's very beautiful, but it's very impractical to live in the town. I mean, you can only get across on this footbridge. There are a few folks who've held on and there's actually a restaurant there that's open seasonally and people will walk across the footbridge to go to the restaurant from the nearby town, you know, so, but most of the town is empty. And the things that I created or invented were really the family specifically in the family's story. And also the villa that features in the book is sort of an amalgamation of different places and actually a villa I stayed in <laughs> in oh, northern Italy. And it's sort of, you know, that's where the invention. Oh, beautiful. Well, yes, that villa was just, you could see, feel and, and really be in it. It was so well done. Almost walk in and see you scribbling away or reading. Yeah. <laughs> Your novel also very much concerns sisters and and the relationship between a lot of sisters, I guess. One of four girls, but we come from a family of seven. But I think you captured that dynamic between sisters just so well. Are you from a big family (laughs) yourself? Yeah, it helps that I have three sisters. (laughs) They're all older than me. I'm the baby and the only boy. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. All sisterhoods, I guess, have their own dynamics. In fiction, so much of what you're interested in is what are the unspoken tensions that exist in a family? Because at the end of the day, we don't really go to fiction to read about perfectly well-adjusted happy families. (laughs) No, absolutely (laughs) not. We tend to go (laughs) to fiction to sort of reflect on our own experiences and to see that portrayed in sort of like the fault lines often in a family. So the sisters were fun. I'm a big fan of Thebold, of uh, passed away some years ago, but he had mentioned in passing in one of his books, three sisters named Violet, Rose, and Iris. And I just loved those names. So I sort of, as an homage to him, used those names. And then fourth sister in the is obviously the mother, um, mm. Hazel Serafino, yes. who is the mother of the narrator. Yeah. So it was fun to delve into that, the, the sisters dynamic for sure. Absolutely. You're so right. I think you do. You bring your own self to fiction and you're seeing mm. things in the pages that you you know are reflected mm-hmm. in your own personal life. And so it was just lovely to delve in and really get into the relationship between the sisters. I thought you just did it just beautifully. There was certainly nothing cookie cutter about their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And it was fun to also write about sisters who are all over the age of 70. I've just discovered, I think, in, in the Sarah DeVos novel with the Marty de Groot character, that was the first time I'd ever mm. really written a character who was in their older years. I think as a writer, just some real pleasure there to really understand how people change as they age and how in some ways they surrender to their own idiosyncrasies. <laughs> I sort of love that yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, the sisters. Yeah, they sort of just own who they are, each individually, and maybe you're, you're beyond the realm of self-improvement when you're 80 and above. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm much more comfortable with my hands. 
Yeah. But I think you're so right. Well, maybe it was just the novels that I was reading, but they used to just be the quintessential grandmother or the quintessential just stand a buyer and watching what's Mm. being played out. I never really saw them interacting in the story and being part of the story. But life is long. And if you focus in on characters who are older, they've got so much more stories to tell. They're still active in the stories that they're telling. For sure. And especially in Italy, you know, I think Italy and Japan leave the world for centenarians. So the most people over the age of of 100 anywhere. And a lot of that has to do with lifestyle and culture and just a sort of mindset. I mean, Mm. when I traveled in Italy, I just met some of the most formidable older women and they looked easily like they could keep going till they were 120. (laughs) They were just amazing that way. And, And that's something we don't often, I think in Australia maybe or in the US, the cultural conversation around aging is different. And I think fiction in some ways reflect that. Mm -hmm. It was nice to be able to sort of work in a different medium and and sort of explore new questions around that. Did you meet anybody who saw aging as once you got to 80, it's just a story that you've already read? (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, not specifically, though. I do remember I had an interview with the oldest resident in Chivita, the town that Valletta is based on. And he's actually an American architect who's lived in the town since the 60s. He sort of adopted it as his home. He was married to an architect who helped sort of put Chivita on the map because of its architectural treasures. And I just remember interviewing him in his kitchen and there were eight cats lounging in various poses around the kitchen. And and he had so many great insights about aging and the town and why he's stayed there. And honestly, it was sort of like the hardest thing with some of those interviews was not to put real people in the book. <laughs> just sort of like do my job as a novelist and actually invent people. But yeah, I mean, he didn't have a quote specifically about everything after 80s, like uh, reading a novel for the second time that you didn't really love the first yeah. time. But he was very honest about all the things that were super challenging about living in the town and about getting older and managing his health. And, and you know, that's obviously also the real side of, of aging. Yeah, I'll definitely have to be reflecting on that in a little minute. But absolutely, I thought the way that the book really delves into aging in general, it was just a lovely read. Thank you. you. And the cats everywhere were just so much fun. So that really was few people. There, Exactly. There's about 25 stray cats that come into the town and there's 10 full-time residents. So they're definitely outnumbered. Yeah. What adds to the haunting quality of Chivita is, is, you know, you walk across this footbridge, you walk into this medieval piazza, you see all these cats and you're you're sort of expecting it to feel uh, desolate, but it's so pristine and beautiful but you keep having this experience where you'll see ornate building facades with no buildings behind them because the buildings have fallen into the valley decades ago. And then the houses that are fully intact, they're very proud of their sense of identity and belonging and the town. And so that you'll see these pristine potted geraniums on everyone's steps and these incredible gardens that are just hanging above the valley. And in fact, the day before I arrived, Uh, one of the residents had fallen off the side of the town, like basically off the cliffs while he was working on his garden. In the end, he was fine. He had some... Oh, my goodness. I think 
he had a cracked rib. It was sort of a reminder of this balancing act between extreme beauty, but also sense of this impinging geological reality that's going on all around you. Yeah, oh, I got that sense from Return to Valento. It is perched up and at any second it could all just crumble and yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Just beautiful. You also talk a lot in the novel about the crimes of the past. I just, it was fantastic. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. And that theme is something that really resonated with me in Italy while I was traveling there and researching. And then the the writing. And and so Italy has this very complex relationship to its own history. On one level, all of these towns that are sort of dying out reflect Italy's sense that in a way, because they're drowning in history. They don't actually think history can be taken away from them, which is really interesting. And you can travel in Rome and be on a street corner and can see three eras of history side by side. You know, you can see the Etruscan era, mm. the Roman era. You might see a fascist monument that's somehow still standing. And I think that's really interesting to me. And so in the book, obviously, Hugh as a historian is sort of pulling on this thread of discovery about the town during World War II and his family's involvement in sort of hybrid some refugees from the north during the Second World War. But then there's also the other part of Italy's involvement in World War II, which was it's the only country that can think of two different sides of the war at different times, right? Mm. And so that the shadow of fascism, of complicity with fascism, obviously looms large in Italian history. And and even today, I think one of the things I was struck by, is especially living in the US at this current moment, like fascism as a ideology is by no means something that just belongs in history. And so I wanted to explore that as a theme that reverberates across the decades in the book, but also in what ways are we sort of still finding pockets of culpability from the past where people (laughs) really owe something to society based on their actions, even though it may be a long time ago. Yes, absolutely. And who should be paying more than just a pocket knife for the actions that they took? You don't stop suffering from the effect. I mean, I just, I thought that your novel just did a great job really exploring justice and the idea that crimes don't just wear down and wear out. Mm. Yeah, and they sort of travel, many of us have stories in our own families where some wrong was done to some member of our family it might be a grandparent, it might mm-hmm. be a great-grandparent. That sort of intergenerational trauma, if you will, mm-hmm. lives on through families, in some ways their DNA, but their storytelling DNA. Like yes. often those stories are embedded in old photo albums and stories mm-hmm. that are passed down. And that was really interesting to me as well, is like through the lens of the historian as the narrator, how are those things sort of buried below the surface, but also completely felt in the lived experience of the family? Yes. Yeah, I thought that was explored just beautifully. It really gave him so much to think about. Beautiful. Like to hear that. The other thing, I think Hugh's mum was so interesting as well. So I remember waitressing and young mums were talking and they were saying, um, I'm not ready for my kid to see me with a hangover yet. I don't want to disappoint them. <laughs> and it struck me, I mean, I was only young myself. It really struck me that you really are putting on a show for your flesh and blood and that we don't ever really know every facet of every family member. And Mm. I've never really gotten the chance to really delve into it in fiction at all. But Hugh's mum, she was arranging her funeral. Yeah, I think think you really hit on something there that there is, I mean... (laughs) 
I have two daughters and who are in their 20s, and I often think that there's this tension in parenting between modeling the parent you want to be and also mm. just being your fully authentic self. And there's always, I think, a push and pull between that. And so in the novel, yeah, I mean, I think that the weight of what has happened without giving any plot spoilers. Away, yes, it's hard to talk about uh, without but, but, the plot, but yeah. <laughs> I know. But the weight of what's happened to Hugh's mother sort of bifurcated her life into these two areas of like, you know, there was the, the before and the Absolutely. after. Absolutely, yes. And what he really experienced was the after. And so that was a time of her closing down both consciously and probably unconsciously and living this very sort of sheltered, shut off from the world. Almost shell-shocked, that, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly, exactly. And I think think of writers, you know, like Virginia Woolf wrote about World War One and, and Mrs. Dalloway, like the mm-hmm. shell shock, mm-hmm. the literal mm-hmm. shell shock of that experience. And I think there is something really fascinating and, and heartbreaking about people who've had those experiences, whether it was war or trauma related to wartime activities and the way they hold it. Mm-hmm. And they're often trying to protect their children from having to experience that pain, but it stunts them in a way. It sort of means that they can never fully move on from it. Yes. It was such an interesting theme to the opportunity to explore. An entire generation, I think, were like that. Yeah, so definitely interesting from a writer's point of view. And uh, obviously, there's a responsibility to try to get that material right and mm. you know, bring it to light in some new way. Yeah, well, it was definitely interesting from a reader's perspective. That was fascinating. I also really loved that Hugh loved his family, loved his wife and loved his daughter. I just, I loved Hugh. I just loved him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I've, I've been getting some good reactions to Hugh when I think about I mean in some ways Hugh is you know as the narrator of the novel he's I used the word stunted earlier he in his own way is sort of been stunted by two griefs one related to the death of his wife and one related Mm -hmm. to the death of his mother the death Mm -hmm. of the mother is more like so much of the novel hinges on that he didn't get to really ever know her yes whereas the grief of his wife and this woman who he built a life with, that's an entirely different kind of grief. But it's interesting because I think Hughes' story, it's sort of like how to be broken slash stunted for a while while still trying to do your best in the world and sort of understanding your own limitations and maybe sort of being also a little bit gentle with yourself eventually by the end of the novel and letting more experiences in and letting healing begin. And so I think that's part of what hopefully readers will relate to is this man who has sort of found himself in this predicament that he doesn't really know how to get out of, but he knows how to be a good human being. He knows how to be kind. And I think that matters a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Very kind character. Where did you get the name Susan from for his daughter? It just... It didn't seem right. It didn't seem right, although... (laughs) Should we workshop other names? No, I mean, Claire, to me, so, you know, obviously Hugh comes from this... Big Italian. Anglo-Italian. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that on one side, but then I was really thinking about Claire, his dead wife's family, and she comes from this, like, sort of New England, Maine family that goes back generations that she's always sort of felt a little bit cringy about and but I felt this tension Susan for me I mean it's funny it it might be a name that 
conjures different things for different people. For my me, mom's the name, name Susan. Susan. <laughs> there we go. That's. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you're bringing something to the page. Yes, and that's <laughs> it, isn't it? As a reader, you always are. Yeah, I, I maybe knew one Susan in college, so I don't have any. Like to me, Susan is sort of a like Claire. There's something a little bit like patrician, maybe a little bit sort of. New Englandy, at least in the U.S., about it, and that's why I chose it because I wanted to reflect the other side of that marriage. Whereas Hugh might have advocated for a name that felt a little bit more Italian, although you know Greta. I don't know. I don't know what his name would have been. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dominic. <laughs> I guess I must have a real interest in the characters' names, but yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> No, that's okay. No, I think names are fascinating, and they're always really hard because the names have to do work in fiction, right? They have to feel right for the character, and that's sort of the way it works in real life. But then every now and again, you're like, you, you discover that someone who calls themselves a name that actually isn't their birth name, and you're like, oh, okay, all right. Like I didn't peg you as yes, a, as a yes, Peggy. Yes. Yeah. Well, the good news is we get to call ourselves whatever we want. People might have their own opinions about it, but at the end of the day, we get to own it. And so do writers. We get to name them whatever we want, and you just hope that the reader comes along for that. Oh, and all power to you. You have done a beautiful job. (laughs) 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 I mean, no disrespect at all. I just, I couldn't. No, not at all. None taken. I thought that it must be a family name. If your mom's name is not Susan, it probably is a fresh name. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've just checked the time and I have taken up so much more of your time than I had hoped that I would. Sorry, I know that you are very busy. And it was so good oh, of you not to at all. in. Thank you. So yeah. I just, Thank I think you. this novel is just everything. It's the whole package. It's not just characters. It's not just beautiful themes. It was also a page turner of a plot as well. I couldn't believe it. I could not put the pages down. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank oh, you for that. And, beautiful, uh, beautiful. Thank you for the conversation and thank you for all you do in the world of books. Thank you very much, Mr. Dominic Smith. I've enjoyed every second of it and right. have a great Thanks time. very much. Thank you. Thank See you. you. Bye. Bye. Okay, so that's it for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Please leave a review wherever you can, but especially where you found my Readable podcast. If you'd like more connection, please head on over to thereadable.com.au. There's plenty of book reviews and recommendations there, and that's also where you'll find my blog. And I would love, love, love to welcome you into our community. There's a membership page on readable.com.au. There are three levels. The first is free, and I'm so hoping that you would like to help me build my online community where we can enjoy reading more together. Thank you.